0: Welcome to Living Well with Dr. Pegg, where psychologist Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark explores a variety of mental health, wellness, and safety topics and shares biblically-based psychological strategies for living well and staying safe. Now, here is your host of Living Well with Dr. Pegg, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark.
1: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to the program. We're brought to you every week by our sponsor, SSI Guardian, who set the new standard in advanced safety education training and has the only program of its kind with an accredited CEU. To learn more about SSI Guardian, go to ssiguardian.com and tell them you heard about them on Living Well with Dr. Peg. You can tune into the program every Thursday from 1 to 2 Mountain on KLZ 560 and online at drpegradio.com. And if you missed last week's episode or any episode of Living Well with Dr. Peg, go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. You can also learn more about my personal transformation retreats and other upcoming events. Purchase my books. Just again, go to drpegradio.com. Dot com. Well, our show today is pre-recorded, uh, but you can feel free to leave a message on my Dr. Peg Facebook page if you have a comment or a question about today's show. And it's uh, always, we never know when we've pre-recorded a show what may happen and transpire between the time of the recording and when the show actually airs. Uh, but we're still heartbroken about all of those who perished and were injured in the most recent school shooting in Parkland, Florida. Uh, but what about the uninjured survivors who are often overlooked? Well, my guest today Lisa, is Lisa Hamp, and she has a message she wants to share with survivors of mass shooting events. And Lisa Hamp is a survivor of the Virginia Tech shooting that took place on April 16th, 2007. And today Lisa speaks and writes about her experience surviving and recovering from the shooting to help others. And she shares a very raw and powerful personal story as well as lessons learned from the Virginia Tech tragedy. And She shares that with first responders, psychologists, counselors, teachers, students, and so many others. And her work's been featured in the Washington Post, Huffington Post, Campus Safety Magazine, and the Domestic Preparedness Journal. Now, Lisa went on to complete her education after Virginia Tech and has her bachelor's degree in mathematics from Virginia Tech, a master's degree in operations research from George Mason University, and another master's degree in economics from Johns Hopkins University. Well, Lisa, as a former college professor, I am very uh, proud and pleased (laughs) to see you with all those degrees. Lisa (laughs) Hamp, thanks so much for being with us today by phone. Welcome back to the program. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yes. Yeah, so that's uh, I'm so glad to see. And we'll talk a little bit about this later, that um, after the tragedy you experienced at Virgin, Virginia Tech, that you were still able to complete your degree, because I imagine for so many survivors, what a life altering uh, experience that can be and, and can really put people off track from from the goals and just the course of their life as they had imagined it. Yeah. Oh, Definitely. Well, I want to give you a chance today to share your experience with my listeners about what happened at Virginia Tech on April 16th, 2007, and, and we're approaching the 11, 11th anniversary of the, of the tragedy, and so many other horrible tragedies have occurred on college campuses and K-12 schools and public venues since that time. But if you would, uh, share your experiences uh, on that, that day in 2007.
2: Yep. Um, At the time, I was a junior. I was studying mathematics, which I did finish out the degree, like you mentioned. Um, And I think the math major says a lot about the way I think, right? Hmm. So I'm analytical. I have this need for control. So that's kind of was my personality beforehand, Um, like a drive and ambitious, you know, got good grades. And then, um, but I also had a good time. Like I went out with my friends on the Um, weekends. It's actually two weeks before the shooting. I had just turned 21. Mm. (laughs) Like, I went out with my friends. We're hanging out. You know, I went to football games. So I had really good, I guess it would be school-life balance. Um, And it was the morning, a Monday morning, um, April 16th in 2007. It was a cold, snowy morning, um, which is kind of very unusual weather for Blacksburg. You know, very much into spring, you'd expect some warmer temperatures, definitely not snow. But... um, that morning, just like any other Monday morning, I headed to campus. I had a 9.05 class that semester, um, and it was computer science, and that was my first class of the day. Uh, it was in North Hall, um, which was the academic building that, you know, um, about two-thirds into my class ended up being attacked. Um, so we're just sitting there in class, um, me and my classmates, and all of a sudden we hear this loud popping sound that's, like, reoccurring, you know, the the popping just won't stop. And I remember thinking, like, that sounds a lot like gunfire, but I don't come from a hunting family or a military family to really know, like, that's definitely what it is. So my mind's trying to make logic, make sense of this. You know, well, there wouldn't be guns on campus, and there definitely wouldn't be guns in the school, so you're, you're trying to figure out what else, what else could that sound be. But, you know, your, your gut feeling deep down is something isn't right. Um, So my classmate and my teaching assistant, they go out into the hallway to go explore. Like, let's go see what this sound Mm. is. Um, And when they did that, the gunman came out of a classroom, and he shot at them and missed. And then they come back into our classroom. They close the door, and my teaching assistant says guns. Mm. There's a man with guns in the hallway. And, you know, she didn't say call 911. She didn't say anything vague. She clearly said, this is what I saw which is really important because what then started happening was other people in the class, Their wheels started turning in their mind, what should we do?
3: Mm.
2: Um, And so the door is closed, but the the door doesn't have a lock, which is a huge problem for us because we know that a closed door isn't necessarily going to prevent him from opening it and walking in. Um, So someone gets the idea to build a barricade, Everyone starts executing, and we put a a card table, one of those folding card tables, up against the door. We put one of our desks and um, you know a few of our bodies. We're all lying on the floor. And Lisa, how how much time is going
1: by where your your classmates are looking out the door, seeing the gunman? They they say gun. You come back in into the room and quick thinking start to build a barricade. How much time has transpired from where you thought you heard the sound of gunfire to that moment?
2: Um, Maybe a minute or two.
3: Mm. So very quickly unfolds. About
2: 30 seconds. Yeah. My classmates go in the hallway. Um, So, which is pretty early on that we have this confirmation that it's a gunman. Mm -hmm. We stopped the questioning of what could it be because those are priceless seconds. You can just keep thinking, what is that? What is that? And seconds are going by. But because they took action and went outside, that got us to the next step. Let's stop wondering, stop wondering what it is. We know what it is. Mm -hmm. Now what are we going to do about it? Um, And so as soon, I mean, we kind of froze also, you know, it wasn't just instantly let's build a barricade. There was definitely some more time passing before that idea was um, said by one of our classmates. And then once someone says something, it gets other people's wheels turning into other creative ideas of what we could do. Mm-hmm. So like communicating the things that come to your mind are important because you may just have one piece of the puzzle, but that may, you know, help someone else in your classroom think of what the next piece is.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Because everyone's body goes into fight or flight. So, you know, it's very rare that someone's just going to have all the answers to figure out what should we do right now. But if you can communicate anything that comes to your mind, then together you can kind of get there. And like we did, we put a barricade up in time, I mean, seconds before he was at our door. Mm. Uh, And it was really just in time. So he uh, is attempting to enter, pushing, kicking at the door. We're um, on the other side. So we're inside the classroom pushing to keep it closed. He's in the hallway pushing to enter. Um, He would shoot through the door it was a wooden door, so the bolts were just going right through the door. But, again, someone said, we got to get low. So we were low, and he always shot chest height. Mm. So he didn't hit any of us. Um, actually, in the classroom across the hall, the shooter was able to shoot through the door and did hit somebody. So that being low was really key for us. Um, but that was just communicating and talking. Um, as, as my classmates, we weren't being quiet about our thoughts. Mm-hmm extremely important yes um yep so that so that kind of him pushing at the door and kicking to get in and shooting happens Um, we we push back and luckily after about 30 40 seconds um, he he leaves our classroom door Um, but we knew that law enforcement still hadn't arrived yet we're like okay well the barricade worked for that episode but what are we gonna do now Um, um, A couple different things we've discussed. We discussed jumping out the windows. Mm. We thought that's one way to exit the building. Um, Another thing we discussed was running down the stairwell. We were the closest classroom to the stairwell, and we thought, well, you know, if if he's farther away, if the shooter's down the hallway, maybe we could get out into the hallway. He doesn't see us because we're the closest stairwell. We wouldn't be in the hallway that long. Um, but we decided just to make our barricade stronger and sort of brace ourselves for if he returned. And he did return. And uh, similar thing to last time, but this time I remember having a little bit of hope because before when the door would swing open when he pushed it, I mean, it seemed like we had no control of the door movement. Um, but the second time I remember it wasn't swinging open as much, mm. you know? And I was like, this, like, if law enforcement could just get here, like, we're so close. We've, we've kept ourselves safe in here. Um, and similar thing last time, you know, 30 seconds or so, he shoots through the door, he tries to enter, and then he gives up again. So uh, it was just I think, a couple of minutes after that, uh, law enforcement did arrive. Mm. So the whole shooting episode was 11 minutes um, from the first gunshot to
1: one they were able to enter. Wow. And we know today, 11 years later, since Virginia Tech, that uh, these incidents unfold and conclude very quickly in a matter of minutes. And they either end because law enforcement arrives, as in your case, or the the assailant uh, commits suicide, or uh, s- some of the folks intervene and stop the assailant. And so, you um, 12, Eleven minutes went by. It may have seemed like a, a lifetime to you, though. I'm sure.
2: Right. Yep. nope, that's very true. So, in our, like in the case of Virginia Tech, law enforcement arrives, and that's it's kind of like the assailant wants to get as many minutes out of this as they can, but they're sometimes not interested in that. I guess standoff with the law enforcement. Mm-hmm. So that's that's not what the gunman. You know, he didn't wait till law enforcement made it to where he was. He ended up committing suicide. Um, once he felt their presence.
1: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, Yeah,
2: which is fairly
1: common. Right. Well, you mentioned so many things that, again, looking back now after all of these years and seeing so many other of these horrible events unfold across our country, uh, there's so many lessons learned. There's so many nuggets of helpful information that we can take from your story. One that really stands out for me is how quickly you concluded, yes, this is gunfire. Uh, so often we hear survivors say they heard firecrackers, uh, they heard you know mm-hmm. the sound of you know a, a car backfiring, and or they they weren't sure maybe you know was that gunfire, and they lose precious seconds trying to figure it out and and going towards um, the the sound. Uh, but it seems like it in your case your classmates confirmed that it was in fact gunfire. But it seems like a, a good a good um, lesson that we could learn is when you think you hear gunfire, assume it is gunfire, and respond accordingly. What are your what What would your conclusion be there?
2: Yeah, I would say that's um, definitely true. You know, something I even do now is I, I, I guess, in the immediately afterwards, I would always wait for repetition.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
2: one loud sound or like is this just rapid? You know, pop pop pop, where it, it is continuous, and then you really do want to go explore, but you have to do so so carefully mm-hmm. because, like, when my classmates went in the hall, they were taking a huge risk going to explore that sound. Um, you know, luckily, he didn't shoot them, but, you know, I don't even want to run down, you know, what happened if he did and then the other things that, that could have possibly unfolded, all the what ifs. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to, when you do go explore, do, do so in a, in a careful way. Um, because, you know, that that can also have, you know, unfortunate consequences.
1: Absolutely. And so, you know, in your case, it worked out well that they went and explored and confirmed, yes, in fact, it was gunfire, but certainly it could have ended very poorly. Uh, So I I think I'd like to tell our listeners, if you think you hear gunfire, assume it is and move away from that threat and immediately either try to evacuate or Um, try to barricade, lock the door if it has a lock. Uh, You talked about communicating with one another and I wonder how much the analytical math minds uh, contributed to that creative process and to kind of, uh, under all of that stress, to be able to think so clearly to barricade and and in addition to barricading, getting low. That's another real important lesson learned is uh, where possible to get as low as you can. Yeah, and you
2: know, I mean, I froze. So it was really, you know, my teaching assistant and a handful of classmates, and each classmate had a piece that I can say, you know, that person had the idea of the barricade, mm-hmm. or that person had the idea to take the card table as the barricade. Because just having the barricade idea, you know, doesn't protect you. It's, it's what is the barricade going to be made of? Right. You know, and someone else was thinking about that, and then someone else had the idea that we need to get low, and someone else had the idea to call 911. So you can see I, I was in freeze mode here. Mm-hmm. But as, as we talk about this and we look back, because that's where the lessons are learned, right, when we right. talk about it. Absolutely. It is, I can barely, very easily see that communication was huge, um, you know, in our classroom being successful to keep
1: the shooter out. Mm-hmm. And we know that every every event is different, and they unfold very quickly, yeah. and even conclude in minutes. And so there is no right answer. There is no just tell me step by step what I need to do. Give me a, a check check the box list. It really is about uh, thinking in advance of. If this were to happen in my classroom, if this were to happen in my workplace, what could I do? And even better, if you're in a, in a class or a regular workplace, have that conversation with the folks around you. So the communication that took place in your case at Virginia Tech on the spot, there's some degree of planning and kind of mental imaging and and what-if thinking that we can do in advance uh, to keep ourselves uh, uh, to be able to respond and overcome that fight-or-flight response. Well, I'm speaking with Lisa Hamp, who survived Virginia Tech on April 16, 2007, the horrible tragedy that occurred there almost 11 years ago. And when we come back, we'll hear more about how she uh, experienced that uh, horrible tragedy, what happened in the immediate aftermath and over the the coming months and, and even years. Stay with us. We'll be back after these messages.
0: don't trust your safety to just anyone. SSI Guardian is the only choice. Visit us at SSIGuardian.com.
4: What if a psychologist with years of experience wrote a book revealing secrets that therapists know but usually don't share? And what if that book provided effective strategies for experiencing lasting change? That's exactly what you get with Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark's book, Do Something Different for a Change, an insider's guide to what your therapist knows but may not tell you. Celebrating 10 years in print, this self-help classic shares critical insights to help you understand and overcome the three common barriers to change, heal your emotional pain and emptiness, and strengthen your connection to your true self and others. In the easy-to-understand, down-to-earth style she's known for, Dr. Pegg clearly communicates fundamental principles and strategies for change and personal transformation. Read Do Something Different for a Change today and have a better tomorrow. Go to drpegradiocom books to purchase your copy today. Studies show that safety greatly impacts student learning and a teacher's ability to do what they do best. Be it broken furniture, a leaking roof, or more serious threat of violence, the 21st Century Safe School by School Specialty addresses school safety from the emotional, social, and physical perspective. Don't wait another moment. Call 877-878-5800 or visit SSIGuardian.com.
3: All
1: right, welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell Clark. You're listening to Living Well with Dr. Pegg, and I've been speaking with Lisa Hamp, who survived Virginia Tech attack uh, on April 16, 2007, and she was not physically injured. Thank God, she and all of her classmates in that math, cl- in that computer science classroom, survived. But that doesn't mean she was with. Out emotional scars, and we'll get into this topic of uninjured survivors. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for being with us back on the show again. Uh, how can listeners get in touch with you?
2: Uh, my email address, which is lisahamp at vt.edu. I'm also
1: on um, Twitter Lisa M lisamhamp. All right, great. And I'll also have a link to Lisa, on my website at drpegradio.com, or if you'd like to share this interview with a friend, you can also go to drpegradio.com for the program archives. Uh, so, Lisa, there were, there were so many wonderful um, lessons that came out of your experience at Virginia Tech because your classmates and you did survive, thank God. Um, you um, confirmed uh, that it was, in fact, gunfire, and that put you all into action where you were communicating. Everyone had something to contribute to um, to figuring out what to do. You took action, barricaded the door, got low. You called 911. As the situation unfolded, you considered additional options. Can, can we jump out of the window? Can we run, run out of the stairwell? Uh, and uh, fortunately did survive. The, the incident un- unfolded in only a matter of minutes prior to the assailant taking his own life. Law enforcement arrived, um, and uh, but the story doesn't really end right there, does it? There was still some time before law enforcement came to your classroom, and so there was still waiting and wondering and, and fear, I would imagine.
2: Yeah, we waited. Um, the first time the police came, we didn't open up because it was too soon after— the last gunfire. Mm. Um, So we made a classroom decision that we were going to keep our barricade up. Um, Even though, you know, this individual on the other side in the hallway saying they're police, we don't really trust them yet. You know, the last person outside our door was shooting at it. So we're going to take this really seriously when we open the door. Um, So we let some time go by, maybe half an hour, 45 minutes. Uh, Police come back and they're... Asking us to open the door. So, so they
1: actually left. Least, they stepped away when you wouldn't open the door?
2: Yeah. Wow.
3: Well, mhm.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'm going to guess that's because in the other classrooms, there was just so much their, their need was there. Mm-hmm. Um, and additionally, the gunman was in one of those classrooms, so they probably, you know, they found the guns, they found um, his ammunition, um, so probably took their attention mm-hmm. to that classroom.
1: So they finally come back and uh, you finally decide to let them in?
2: Yep, we let them in and uh, we opened the door and we had a classroom discussion that if it was going to be, um, my one classmate was gonna open it. And if he saw the police officers, he was gonna to continue to open the door. And if he saw the gunman, he was going to close the door. And we we're all gonna put our barricade and wait back up against the door. And he opens it a little bit and he, he closes it. And so we all look at him and we're like, what did you do that for? And the reason was because law enforcement was entering, you know, in, a, in the manner you'd expect, which is guns out in front. Mm. So as soon as he opened that door, he just sees the guns in his face and he, you know, knee-jerk reaction, slams the door closed. But then he communicates to us that it is the, the um, police. And so we do open it, um, and they enter, we put our hands up, we have to leave everything, and they let us know they're going to escort us out of the building. And I describe that in a very calm way. But the law enforcement were very intense. You know, they were, um, it was, the scene they had just come to was nothing they could have ever expected. So it was, it is still very tense. Um, But we're told we're going to be escorted out in single file, put our hands up. Um, until we get into another building, so that walk out of the building is something that I had not prepared myself mm. for, because in my classmate classroom we were all physically unharmed. So I hadn't even, my mind hadn't even gotten to what what happened in the other classrooms um, until that door opened, until
1: we had to take that walk out, mm. and um, that. You know, yeah. Yeah. And, and we yeah. we have seen since so many times the media coverage of the um, physically unharmed survivors coming out with their hands up. And again, that's done because law enforcement doesn't know is the bad guy still amongst those survivors. So we've got to come out with right. our hands up, think, you know, fingers spread, making sure that there's nothing in our hands, following the commands mm-hmm. of law enforcement and. Um, so, really, we've seen those images, but we don't take the time to see it through the eyes of those survivors. There's got to be death and carnage around you that has mm-hmm. got to be traumatizing.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's just nothing I could have ever expected. Mm. Um, but one thing I do want to talk about when we talk about options is um, we were sort of talking about it right before we closed, but you know it's very common for for when teaching about active shooter situations, you've probably heard run, hide, fight. And there's also, you know, avoid, deny, defend. In some aspects, these are great because it gets people thinking about what their options are. But when I think back on my classroom in the barricade, you know, we didn't necessarily, we didn't really run, right? We stayed in the classroom. We didn't hide in the traditional sense because hiding would have been really like doing nothing, maybe just putting our desks over our heads. But we didn't also we didn't fight in the traditional sense, which is more of like a go into the hallway, and go confront the gunman. So the solutions are not solutions, but the options in an active shooter event are more than what you can just put on three fingers, like mm-hmm. run, hide, fight. Um, but they kind of are. If you put run, hide, fight on a triangle with each of those words in a corner, there's lots of solutions in that space. Yeah, and it's being creative. Like jumping out windows or mm-hmm. building a barricade, or you know, so I just encourage people to remember that those, that, those run high fight and avoid deny defender, their starting point. Right,
1: absolutely. But
2: when it really happens. You're probably going to have to get
1: more creative than that. That's good. And our sponsor, SSI Guardian, offers advanced active shooter training. For the very reasons that you're describing, Uh, it's really not that checklist of just these three things in that order. It really is about um, situational awareness. It's about uh, the mental imaging and, in advance, thinking through what would I do if and knowing there are options for your particular environment, your particular classroom. Uh, You and your classmates were aware that there was a stairwell close by, and that was an option. Uh, if, if you mm-hmm. could determine that the assailant was further down the hall and still firing down there, that would have given you a window perhaps to evacuate out of the stairs. But there's really no checklist. I, I like how you visualize that as a, that triangle and, and on the um, legs of the triangle are multiple options that only you can decide in that moment. Um, under, right. uh, under all of that stress, you've got to make a decision of, of what's, what's, what the possible options are that you're willing to execute. And in your case, you and your classmates uh, made that decision together by consensus. Um, different people had different ideas, and, and you decided uh, to do some of those ideas.
2: Yeah, and I'll just add to that. It's a good, I don't think I said this yet, but it's a good thing we didn't choose the sterile options. We didn't know this. We learned afterwards, but the shooter had chained us in.
3: Mm. So
2: if you were in on the second floor of Norris Hall, he had put chains, and those chains were to keep the students and faculty on that floor chained in, Mm. and the law enforcement chained out. So if you run down that, what if we did do the stairwell? You know, we undo the barricade. We go out into the hallway. Oh, no, the doors won't open. We can't get out. We run back down the hallway into our classroom. Those seconds just add up. Right. But... You know, so we made the best decision, but we had no idea about those chains. I mean, yes. that was very lucky, and I just encourage people that if you do experience a traumatic event where you have to make a decision and you survive, to be kind to yourself because, you know, hindsight's 2020. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that information. You know, we just happened to make the best decision, but it's always so easy looking back, figuring out what the best thing would,
1: would have been. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and and that's so important is uh, in the moment you do the best you can and you can't beat yourself up uh, for the choices you made. And then also there's that, that issue of survivor guilt of all of those other folks who didn't survive, who maybe didn't even have an opportunity to make a choice because he came right in there. Uh, and so I like what you said, being kind to yourself. Now, I imagine this tragedy affected you. Um, in so many different ways, um, emotionally, um, mentally, socially, um, in the immediate aftermath, you weren't prepared for what you saw outside of your classroom on the, on the walk out as, as you were being escorted out by law enforcement. and certainly over the subsequent months, um, how, has, how, how did the tragedy affect you in the immediate aftermath? Yeah, well so I didn't
2: uh, my classmate was, my classmates were many of them graduated or did not return to campus
3: mm-hmm.
2: and so out of the ten of us plus a teaching assistant, there wasn't very many people who returned for um for another year um either they were seniors or graduate students, but I was a junior, so I did return um and uh, I felt very lonely because I didn't have my classmates anymore, mm-hmm. plus Virginia Tech, you know thirty thousand students and faculty so it's Although that may sound like, oh, how could you be alone? You're with 30,000 people. You kind of get lost in that 30,000.
1: Yeah. How hard was it to um, because, come back to, to class? Did you come back immediately after and finish out the semester? Or?
2: Well, so we, got, we had the option, all students had the option to either take their grades um, as is, or you could finish out a class. So if you had five classes, you could pick and choose, you know, I, I'm going to take my grades here, and I'm just going to go to this one class. But for me, I just chose to take my five grades as is. Mm-hmm. So after mid-April, I did not return to the classroom till fall semester, like late August. Um, and I didn't, there, people sometimes ask, was it, did you ever decide not, like we were you ever thinking not to go back to Virginia Tech. And I loved my first three years so much that that option never even crossed my mind. Um, I enjoyed being in Blacksburg. I'm like, this is where my friends are. Why would I want to go senior year somewhere else where I know nobody? Mm-hmm. Um, so I did return. But, but what I realized is that that fourth year was so much different than the first three. Um, because I was dealing with anxiety in the classroom, you know. I was. You have this fear of it happening again.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: people will tell you, you know, like, you look at the statistics, look at the odds, like, this isn't going to happen to you again. But there's really no guarantee, you know, until you put a lock on that door and we start seeing infrastructure changes. And you can tell me that every person in this world that no one's going to, you know, another shooting's not going to happen. So I felt like when people would tell me it wouldn't happen again, I feel like they were just like these, they're trying to make me feel better. You know, it came from a good place, but, you know, there is, there was no guarantee. Yeah. So I would sit in the classroom and I'd have this anxiety. Um, I would watch the door. Um, I would always have my ears, like, on high alert for sounds. I'd pick my seat based on my escape plan. Um, and it was this 24-7, hypervigilant, you know, next time, my classmates, they may not be there to keep me safe. So Lisa has to do that for herself.
1: And so on on the one hand, there's a balance between what I called earlier situational awareness, uh, being able to see the door, seeing what your exits are, uh, being alert to, you know, anything that looks suspicious, makes you feel uncomfortable. That would be important, especially in the environment in which we're living today. But you were in the extreme where you were so vigilant, so alert that you couldn't relax couldn't concentrate. I I read in one of your blogs that um, you said you didn't share your feelings with others because you couldn't find anyone who understood what you experienced and that the trauma created a wall between you and anyone Mm -hmm. who didn't experience that with you. Uh, Talk about what that was like, especially in the context of this hypervigilance, hyper hyper red alert uh, mode you were in. You definitely
2: um, take off on something when I speak. I think about safety now on this spectrum Mm -hmm. from 1 to 10. So 1 is Lisa before the shooting. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't think about my safety. I was going out having a fun time. I was going to class. I was going to the gym. But I never really thought, you know, what happened if an active shooter happened here? What happened if an emergency, a weather situation um, happened here? Didn't give it a thought in the world. But then April 16th happens, and I go from being a 1, you know, very Mm -hmm. naive about safety, to a ten where I am hypervigilant, obsessive, thinking about it all the time. And I think we want to be somewhere in the middle of that spectrum where we have a plan for where we are most often, whether that's work, school, home, church. And that plan is going to look different, you know, based on the location. But we're in the middle. So we're aware, but we're not um, like I was after the shooting, you know, obsessive.
1: Yeah, that's that's perfect, is, um, yeah, you can't function at a 10, and your head is in the sand, you're oblivious at a 1. And so right. being in the middle yeah. there, being prepared, being aware, um, and, and knowing what your options are, uh, doing that what-if planning, not to make yourself paranoid, but really to make yourself prepared. Um, you also right. uh, wrote on your blog that resilience on the outside doesn't necessarily correspond to resilience on the inside and so friends and family might yeah. have seen that you look like you were doing well and do and coping and bouncing back but on the inside might have been a, another story we have about two minutes left in this segment talk about uh, what that was like to kind of feel like people weren't really seeing and understanding what was going on with you yeah
2: well i mean they weren't seeing it because i was hiding it from them because I was ashamed of it Mm. so you know academically my grades were doing fine um if you looked at me physically from the outside it looked like I was doing fine I was going to the gym I was watching what I was eating so I, I didn't have a change in my weight um although I you know ended up becoming obsessive about those things like food and exercise but from the outside um academics are fine you know physical fitness is fine uh I didn't, I pulled back a little bit from my friends, um, but, but nothing I would say that was really, you know, something they would have noticed.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, it was really all inside my mind. So the emotions, um, the, the mental stuff, because so often I think with mental health and mental illness, we told to look for these things, you know, right. look for a change, change in later, look for how someone um, may, maybe they were always going to church and they stopped or yeah. look for those habit changes.
1: Um, but they but weren't really someone, evident for you. Uh, you were holding right, those back. Right, ashamed yeah, of them. Yeah. yeah. And, and yeah. Let, let me take a break there. Listeners, uh, this is Lisa Hamp, and she survived the Virginia Tech shooting in April of 2007. We're coming up on 11 years since that tragedy. And when we come back, Lisa will share more about how she coped, and uh, what she would recommend to survivors of, of mass shootings that we've been experiencing since 2007. Don't go away. We'll be right back with Lisa Hamp. Stay with us.
0: Schools are increasingly adopting 21st century learning strategies. However, safety largely remains absent from the conversation and fragmented efforts continue allowing for security gaps. Studies show effective learning can only exist when students and teachers feel safe. As the industry leader providing innovative educational solutions for more than 58 years, School Specialty has created the 21st Century Safe School, which aligns next generation learning best practices with proven safety solutions focused on the mental, physical, and emotional well
1: I'm dr peggy mitchell clark do you ever make changes but after a few days weeks or even months you slip back into your old behaviors and patterns if you want something different you've got to do something different yet most people won't do what's required to experience the lasting change they say they want why because change is hard it's scary and it comes at a cost if you're ready for change join me for a one day do something different for a change personal transformation retreat in this intensive yet intimate retreat, you'll learn fundamental principles and strategies for lasting change and transformation and craft a customized plan that you can put into action right away. Contact me today to schedule your own private VIP Do Something Different for a Change Personal Transformation Retreat. Go to drpegradio.com/retreat. All right, welcome back, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark. This is Living Well with Dr. Pegg, and you can listen every week and get the program archives at drpegradio.com. I'm talking with Virginia Tech survivor Lisa Hamp. Lisa, thanks so much uh, for for sharing, being so transparent, Um, learning so much uh, from lessons learned from the tragedy you experienced and reflecting over these past 11 years. Really some good information coming out today. Thank you. Well, let's uh, talk about, uh, you said that you kind of had this wall up, this mask up, that um, there was some shame there about how you were really feeling on the inside. You may have looked good to friends and family, didn't experience or exhibit too many changes from how you used to be prior to uh, April 16, 2007. Um, and so how, how could a loved one who knows that um, someone they care about has survived a tragic event like like what you went through but they're not showing mm-hmm. outward signs what can we do uh, to help those survivors this, again especially those physically uninjured survivors um that that mm-hmm. come out without having any medical you know issues but it's all internal what can we do to, to yeah. pull down that mask yeah
2: and i think it was kind of how i described A lot of it goes back to how I described myself before the shooting, Mm -hmm. which was, you know, this math major that was analytical. I'm also type A, (laughs) so, you know, competitive, drive, ambitious, and this desire to to make people proud, like want them to be impressed Mm -hmm. with me. So I think that is where that that mask and wall came from, was the type A personality and person I am. I didn't want people to be embarrassed or shamed or know that I was struggling So I would say, you know, if you have someone in your life that is type A, kind of like I described myself, um, that those would definitely be the people who kind of do what I did. And I would, you know, ask them how they're doing. And when you talk to them about what they experienced, it's so important just to listen. You know, you really just want them to open up and get what's what's on their chest off. It's not about giving them advice. Mm -hmm. Um... It's more about just listening mm-hmm. because that that can develop a relationship with them and then they you know they can trust you and then then over time they might start asking you for advice.
1: right. And so even in the beginning, if they really don't share much or insist they're okay, is communicating uh, that you are there if and if and when they ever do want to share anything, whether it's about the tragedy mm-hmm. or anything else, it's really just building that relationship and that trust it sounds like. Yeah. Well. Yep. Good. It's, it's been 11 years since Virginia Tech. Um, Lisa, how does it impact you when you learn about yet another violent attack at a school or a campus or public venue? Does that bring it all back for you? What's that like?
2: Yeah. Oh, man, so many emotions. So um, one of them is sadness, just because now I know there's another population of people, you know, having to go through what I went through and mm-hmm. how painful of an experience it is. And every time we've been hearing about these incidents, it seems like one a month, the frequency is just picking up, and it just, that makes me sad. But then it, it also makes me frustrated that that this trend is not going the right direction. So then with the frustration, there's just anger, and why haven't we done anything about this? And uh,
1: so many mm-hmm. emotions, right. but, yeah. And so it's, it's really... Uh lack of a better word, a, a club that probably you never would have wanted to be a member of, but uh, certainly can relate to, I'm sure, what some of these other survivors are going through. Um, in particular, the uninjured survivors. What, what do you think, um, what, what do our listeners need to understand yeah. about what it's like for, for you and all these countless others uh, who have gone through what you've gone through? Yeah, I think it's
2: so important to just listen to your feelings and to um you know if you're having difficulty dealing with your feelings to go find someone professionally who can help you like a counselor i mean that that did wonders for me but i learned so much about counseling along the way because this was my first after virginia tech was my first encounter with counseling Mm. so prior to the incident i never had lost a family member i had never been abused i had nothing that Um, you know, life was easy. I didn't need a counselor in my life. So, um, when I first started going, I didn't understand, I guess, how it worked. Like, I thought you just kind of like when you have a cavity at the dentist, you just show up physically. You really don't need to be there mentally Mm. to get your cavity fixed. (laughs) Um, but when you go to the counselor, like you're putting in work, it isn't like any other doctor where you just kind of go there and they do the surgery part and you lay there.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You can can lay on the Freudian couch, but you still got to do some work there too, huh?
2: Right. So the first part is getting yourself to the couch, getting there physically. And then the second part is getting there mentally such that you're able to um, hear the counselor's advice, talk to the counselor about what's on your your mind. And you really have to trust them. And you're not going to trust, you might not trust the first person you go to or the second person. So you kind of have to, it's a little bit more of exploring. It's like, you know, finding a significant other—you just don't start. You marry the first person you start dating, usually, um, because you, it just takes time to figure out, to figure that out. Um, and so, with a counselor, like I mean, I started sharing with her things that I had never shared with my husband or my parents. So I was being extremely vulnerable, or I felt really vulnerable when I was telling her. You know. These are my eating disorder habits, and these are the things I'm really worried about and anxious about. And you're not going to get there to that point where you're going to start talking about it unless you trust them.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and as a result of uh, what you experienced, you did develop an eating disorder, uh, and so that's something. Is mm-hmm. that what brought you to counseling, or did you go to counseling it uh, is. right after the tragedy?
2: I went. So the tragedy happened on a Monday. I went that Saturday, and then I also went a couple times. It was in April, so I went a little bit, and it was like July, August time frame for a couple, handful more sessions, about five. And then it was eight years later mm. that I gave it a try again. Wow. So my lesson is, like, don't call it quits on counseling too early. You know, keep, if you're struggling, keep trying different people, different types of counseling, um, because eight years is so long, you know. But um, I did eventually find an eating disorder counselor, and first session, you know, she asked me to talk about myself, just as we get to know each other. And I breeze right over the shooting. You know, I tell her I went to Virginia Tech. Oh, there was a shooting my junior year, and I was there. But um, you know, now I work in the Pentagon, and now I'm um, trying to start a family. And and she asked me to. Can you go back and talk about that shooting?
3: Mm. And,
2: you know, type A personality I am, I'm like, um, all right, lady, but, you know, I told you what my goals are, and that's to get my menstrual cycle back because I'm having fertility issues. So I need you to focus on my goals. But this shooting thing is going to distract us. And it's not, you know, I did not in the slightest bit think that there was a relationship between mm-hmm. the shooting and the eating disorder. But then, you know, she, I start opening up about it. And, I realized that there was, that, that the, the shooting triggered my eating disorder. Um, and it's so common, this relationship between psychological trauma and addiction, if you don't get help.
1: Right. Uh, what so. they call self-medicating, that if you're not acknowledging mm-hmm. how it's impacting you, it is still impacting you just because you may be repressing it or sweeping it under the carpet. You're still tripping over the pile under the carpet, And so trying to cope with those feelings without realizing what's really going on, you may reach for some things that are not so healthy. It might be destructive. Yeah,
2: and in my case, I I reached for a healthy thing. You know, you wanna put food in your body, you wanna exercise your body, but anything that you then start doing all the time, like exercising Mm -hmm. all the time, healthy things can become unhealthy. Right, Compulsive Uh,
1: exercising, right? Yeah, Mm
2: -hmm. right, exactly. Um, so you, you have to be, make sure that your, your self-care toolkit has a lot of things. Yeah. Cause if you've only got one thing in your toolkit, then you're going to likely abuse that tool. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, exercise was something that it felt good to do after the shooting. I liked to go out for a run, but then that was like the only tool I had to deal with my feelings. So then I had to run every day. Um, and so now, you know, my counselor, she helped me build a self-care toolkit. It has other things. You know, it has a journal where I can go write down what I'm thinking. I can go talk to somebody. I can, you know, read a book, listen to music, take a bath. These are all other ways to deal with uncomfortable feelings as opposed to always exercise, exercise, exercise.
1: Yeah, and that, that's a wonderful way to think about it, um, developing some coping strategies, that uh, therapeutic or self-care toolkit, and it would look different for each person, wouldn't it, uh, what works mm-hmm. for you, there might be some general strategies and general suggestions um, that probably most of us would find helpful, but we're going to gravitate yeah. to certain things that have the best uh, impact for, for e- each of us as an individual.
2: Yep. And it won't always be the same thing. And I think that's the power of the toolkit mm-hmm. is sometimes when you're in a situation, you reach for the journal, but then, you know, another time you're in a different situation and you reach for your, your music. Um, So it will always be something different in
3: the toolkit that you get through that
1: difficult time. Mm -hmm. And as you're journaling, I imagine sometimes it's for yourself, and sometimes it may turn out to be for others. Uh, You wrote a letter uh, to your fellow survivors of mass shootings um, that, Mm -hmm. uh, based on your experience as a Virginia Tech survivor and having now a connection with... Uh, the the other survivors of these mass shootings. Uh, some of your personal thoughts um, turns out were helpful to share with others. Talk about that.
2: Yeah, and it was really after the Las Vegas shooting because the physically uninjured survivors after that shooting is just like astonishing to me. I mean, it like breaks my heart that that many people you know had to witness that shooting. Mm-hmm. So. um I wanted to figure out how can I help this large, this massive hundreds of people. Yeah. Um yeah. so I thought, you know, I can share with them what I've learned along the way, which um, I actually got really positive feedback after writing that. I mean, so many Vegas survivors reached out to me and said, "Thank you so much. Like I go back to your letter all the time and remind myself of those
1: things." So
3: mm-hmm.
1: um, and something of the that, something really unique yeah, about that because it was such a large group of folks in this outdoor public venue there was such a loss of life and so many physically injured and then as you're describing so many uh survivors who escaped physical harm you know and then Mm -hmm. then most of them didn't live in las vegas uh, you know where they they scatter and go back to wherever they live and now they're the only one who went through that in their whole community. Yeah. Uh, and no one yeah. may even know they were there unless they actually, right. you know, go out of the way to make sure folks know. And so it, it really was a unique unique situation with so many uh, uninjured survivors.
3: hmm
2: Definitely. And some of the things I share in that letter is I didn't realize how hard going out at public was going to be, mm-hmm. like returning to public places, Um you know, it got better with time.
1: Not just but to school. Not just returning to school. Yeah, not just to school. But public yeah. places in general. What 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 do you think accounted yeah. for that?
2: Because I knew it kind of goes back to when people would try to tell me, Oh, it won't happen to you again. Mm. There's no guarantee that it won't happen. And so I knew I just felt unsafe, um, because I knew these incidents weren't just happening in classrooms. And you would turn on the news and you would see all the different locations that they're happening. Mhm. Um, and then I also shared something I did afterwards as a physically uninjured survivor is I compared my experience to the families that lost loved ones and the physically injured survivors, um, and put them on almost a totem pole of pain. And I put myself mm-hmm. on the bottom. What I realized is this, this isn't a pain competition. This isn't about who's experienced the most pain. You know, uh, I thought, well, I'm at the bottoms of this totem pole. I lucked out. So I'm not getting any resources. I don't, you know, I thought I didn't need any. Um, but physically uninjured survivors need resources too, and they need help get, to find out finding their way to a new normal.
1: So important um, after any tragedy and, yeah. and so, so relevant here.
2: Yeah. Um, and then just to really prioritize your self-care and your recovery above everything else
3: mm-hmm.
2: because, um, you know I was so young I didn't even know what prioritizing self-care meant right but uh, you know everyone's journey is going to look different or your recovery isn't going to be linear um, but that that wounds can be both physical and mental and not to forget about
1: those mental Yeah. And, and so you got a, a big response from the Las Vegas survivors and I, I imagine it's probably even more important when we have uh, school shootings and minor children Uh, as young as, you know, elementary school-age kids in the case of Sandy Hook, for example, and the Parkland, Florida high school students are still minor students. And so they have far fewer uh, coping strategies, far less life experience to make sense of this. And so all the more important that uh, we need to be mindful, uh, in addition of those physically uninjured survivors, and and not everyone has a trauma response. Some people are resilient and they do bounce back. Truly, they don't just look good on the outside; mm-hmm. they're doing okay. But we really have to be yeah. mindful of those who are not doing okay, and especially when it's children involved.
2: Yeah, yeah, and that because I mean this is is such a tragic tragic event, something they've experienced in Parkland that. You know, it's that, for a lot of them, that first big, hard thing that's going to, you know, test their, their coping skills mm-hmm. and their their resilience. Um, and it's just such a young age to be
1: tested. Mm-hmm. And then we have so many young people who, yes, like yourself, may have not been through uh... too many tragedies and you know anything in particular that was a struggle for them uh... but then we have so many young people growing up in communities where there is violence where they have experienced tragedies uh... you know the adverse childhood experience Study The the ACE study, as it's known, has shown that so many um, children are going through these adverse experiences that do traumatize them. And they can be resilient possibly initially, but then this happens and could be the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. And so, again, whether it's a a first traumatic event or or the series of many, um, certainly we have to make sure that uh, everyone gets the resources they need when they need them.
2: Yeah, I actually like to add that to that. That the, the traumatic, if it's that one-time traumatic event, it doesn't need to be in the media like Virginia Tech or Las mm-hmm, Vegas mm-hmm. or Parkland. You know, a death toll of one. That's right. Where you witness something, um, traumatic. That that's all it takes. It that's doesn't right. have to be something that hits the news for it to completely, you know. Um,
1: Yeah, everything is is individualized, yeah, personalized. Well, thank you so much, Lisa Hamp, for being my guest today. Um, We we thank you so much for the insights that you've provided, your transparency, sharing your story, and uh, just the lessons learned. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you.
1: My guest has been Lisa Hamp, and I'm Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark, reminding you to live well. You can tune in every Thursday at 1 o'clock on KLZ 560 and online at drpegradio.com.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of Living Well with Dr. Peg. For more information or to contact Dr. Peggy Mitchell-Clark about her mental health or consulting services, please visit her webpage at drpegradio.com.
3: It's cold and living my life